Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Back in 2017, we did an episode about the Confederate submarine H.L. Hunley. And at the end of that episode, we talked about some research that had been done by Dr. Rachel Lance about the cause of the disaster that killed the Hunley's entire crew. We just replayed that episode as a Saturday classic this past weekend for folks who don't know that story. Uh, Dr. Lance and we had a brief email exchange after that, um, after the friends of the Hunley issued a press release that kind of dismissed her findings without really engaging with her hypothesis. And now she has written a whole book about that research, not just about the conclusions that she came to, but also her whole process of doing research, experimenting, and sifting through information to really get to the truth of it. That book is called In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. Dr. Lance was kind enough to sit down with me to talk about it. We are sharing that interview today. So, I'm here today interviewing Dr. Rachel Lance, author of In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. That book, I really loved reading. It combines science and history and memoir all together while recounting her PhD research into what caused the disaster aboard the H.L. Hunley. That disaster led to the death of the whole crew during the U.S. Civil War. So, welcome, Dr. Rachel Lance. Thank you. First, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Well, as you mentioned, I did my PhD, and I did that at Duke University. And what I am is a biomedical engineer, and that's a really vague term. It can encompass a lot of things, but I specifically study patterns of injury and trauma that occur to people. One of the subjects I really enjoy studying and I'm passionate about is uh, trauma patterns from explosions. And the reason for that is because not only do I get to occasionally set explosions while I'm researching those, but also it's a very real problem that still affects a lot of active duty servicemen and women. So I worked on that PhD at Duke while I was also working for the U.S. Navy, which ties together those two interests. And as part of that research, it started out as a little bit of a side project, but it ended up being a bit like quicksand. I started researching this case of the Civil War submarine H.L. Henley. In this book, you talk about knowing from the start that this project about the Henley was going to be complex and that historical projects that you might work on always are so what are some of the complexities that are involved with doing scientific research on historical projects, especially ones that folks that are outside this whole world might not think of? The biggest complexity is always that human memory is really unreliable. I had learned this the hard way when uh, my advisor, Dale Bass, and I had started working on a project looking at shell shock to soldiers who were operatives during World War I. And what we discovered over the course of that project is that when someone is unexpectedly near an explosion, they tend to think the explosion is a lot closer than it actually was. So for that case, that was a huge complicating factor. And add that on top of the normal issues of any history project where all all of the information is buried somewhere in archives. And to get any piece of data, you have to go through boxes and boxes of old filed handwritten documents that are not searchable. 
I knew that that would kind of have to happen with the Hunley as well, that I would be dealing with these battles between different testimonies that disagreed with each other, with people who could be considered unreliable witnesses and might not be telling things as accurately as they actually happened when they wrote them down. And in addition, just the general inability to type it into Google and find the answer and instead have to go to an archive. That has definitely come up on this show before when we have seemed sometimes a little surprised that people in a particular historical period did not have a piece of information. And it's just because, like, they they didn't have access to it. It was in some archive in some other country, and they had never been there. Right, right. Sometimes there's also a language barrier, too. Like, I would have really loved to look at some of the old submarine prototypes from other countries. There's some records of some from China and things like that. But I do not speak sufficient Chinese for that research. So. Right, right. So you talk in your book about how before shifting your focus onto the Hunley, you had been studying blast injuries in World War II, specifically in people who were in the water when they were hurt. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that research and where you were kind of thinking it might lead you before you switched onto this other focus? Well, I started that research just because like any PhD student, I was looking for a project. You need to pick your own dissertation project and it has to be a substantial enough contribution to the world of science that they're then going to call you doctor afterwards. (laughs) So for me, as someone who'd been working for the Navy and had previously been working building underwater breathing systems, that translation of my work into looking at underwater explosions seemed really natural. And on top of that, the more I dug into what the current guidelines are for safety from underwater blasts, the more I realized that we don't know very much about it. So that's actually part of ongoing research for me. It's something I still want to keep continue pursuing and I've been picking away at slowly. But the way that I was doing it and the way that I got started was looking at World War II soldiers who had ended up in the water when their ships were sunk. So this was happening in the battles in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. Some enemy force would end up sinking their ship. And what would happen was they often had a depth charge that was primed and ready to go on board the deck because they were typically fighting submarines. And as their ship went down, the depth charge would slide off the back as the rest of the vessel sank. And then when it got to its predetermined depth where the trigger was set for, it would go off. Now, at this point, it's kind of friendly fire by like an inanimate object. And these guys would be in the water and they'd been been swimming away. They knew this was coming, so they tried to get as far as possible. And so what happened was for me as a researcher, you have these hundreds of case reports of men who are swimming in the water, who know about how far away their sinking ship is, who are aware of that distance, which is important, and then who end up with this variety of injuries. And for an injury biomechanist person like me, you could take that and turn that into a useful guideline for how far away you need to be in order to be safe. So the sort of end goal was to figure out guidelines. If you're in the water, you need to get this far away in order to be a little safer from the blast. Exactly. My work is always about safety guidelines and protective equipment, which is actually part of why I like it, because I kind of feel good about that at the end of every day. Yeah. But um, typically, if someone is trying to do harm, they'll just overestimate how much TNT they need or whatever explosive they're using. But if you want to be safe, you need to know how far away you need to evacuate from that charge. So yeah, that's what I was trying to do is come up with a more meaningful guideline for how far away people need to be from these explosions before they are at lower or zero risk of injury and death. Uh, In your book, 
Um, we will have, hopefully listeners will have listened to our H.L. Uh, Henley episode as a Saturday classic before they come into this, or they will already be familiar with the basics of the, the Hunley disaster. In your book, you walk through the steps that you took to disprove some of the proposed explanations for what caused this disaster, um, as well as the very long process of gathering the data to support the, the explanation that you've concluded is the right one. How did the process of trying to rule out what didn't happen compare to the process of trying to confirm what did happen? Well, I think it was a lot easier to rule out the other theories because they didn't involve me getting into a farm pond. <laughs> um, that's the biggest difference right there is I got to do a lot of that work in an, a room with electricity. So for the two main other theories that I looked at were the theories that the crew suffocated inside the closed hull, which seems like an obvious question to ask, right? This is a homemade submarine. And so mm -hmm. it's a very real possibility that they simply ran out out of air. And then the other question was whether or not someone from the crew of the Housatonic, while shooting at the Henley, managed to hit them and sink the vessel or at least kill the captain. The first one that I did was the suffocation. The actual word is asphyxiation. Suffocation is only when you run out of oxygen. I don't mean to get too nitpicky, but that's like kind of a thing I care about. Um, and so for that one, that was largely math. So I was looking at the pictures of the Hunley and I was creating models and I was measuring gas bases and I was using historical research from our field of respiratory physiology and trying to calculate how much oxygen they would have used and how much carbon dioxide they would have produced. So that one was largely math. The second one, the lucky shot theory, we both went to a firing range, which was, it was a fun day, um, but we got to use some historically accurate weapons and shoot at cast iron samples to look at the damage incurred there. But that was also, again, a largely calculation-based thing. So the Hunley was discovered 310 meters east of the wreck of the Housatonic. Now, the reason that's interesting is because that's pretty far. So if the crew of the Housatonic was shooting at the Hunley and they hit her or they killed the lieutenant, why did this thing drift over three football fields further out to sea before anyone took any kind of corrective action? Um, and so then for the blast experiments, those were wildly different. And I kind of hinted at that, but I really can't overstate what a weird physical setup that was. I had to befriend a tobacco farmer because there was no way Duke was letting me use live explosives on campus. Um, we got the ATF involved, so we were making sure we were doing things legally and safely. But we were also pretty far from any electrical outlets. And a lot of that project was me starting with marine boat batteries and building electrical harnesses to power the normal measuring equipment that I could wow. typically just stick into an outlet in the lab. And so that's obviously just like a really, really wild and different type of experiment to do. So I think that that was probably the big difference. You mentioned in the book that you are not the only person to have suggested that blast trauma could have had a role in this disaster, just that you're the first person to actually back that up with data. Uh, who were some of the other people to make that connection earlier on? 
The earliest one I could find was actually from 1877. And I was Whoa. pretty excited. Yeah, I was pretty excited about running across that quote uh, because I felt like this kindred spirit tie through the times. But um, yeah, there was a reporter who was publishing in a New Orleans paper and he wrote, undoubtedly the concussion produced by the explosion of the torpedo destroyed instantly the lives of Dixon and his crew. So pretty early on, there's this suspicion that the blast might have had something to do with the crew deaths. And uh, personally, I, I think that's pretty interesting that there's ever an argument against it, because throughout this whole project, my family and I were jokingly referring to it as people near a giant bomb sometimes die. Um, <laughs> this this charge was at least 135 pounds. I think there's a better historical record to show that it was actually 200 pounds of black powder. And it was only 16 feet away from the, the hull of the submarine. Sometimes the Hunley as a submarine uh, and its its mission that night is described as a David versus Goliath story with this tiny little submarine that was really, really small, sinking a massive warship. Um, and in some ways, your book reads to me like the whole book is a David versus Goliath story because you were working on a PhD dissertation, albeit, I mean, at a large and, and wealthy university, but like graduate students are not known for having tons of money and resources at their disposal all the time. And you were trying to get access to information and resources from an established organization that just did not seem open to sharing that with you. Was this parallel that something that occurred to you as it was happening? Not in the way you phrased it. <laughs> no, if I'm being honest, um, as a scientist, and like I'm still an active scientist, I work now as faculty at Duke, but science always feels like the Goliath. I always feel like this one little person who's just trying so hard to find the truth. And every experiment I've ever set up, it's felt like the odds were stacked against me. So I wouldn't necessarily say I felt like a little David because I was a graduate student working by myself, but which I wasn't, I did have a great team. So that that's part of it. Like every scientist has a team. Um, but I think it's more the effect of every time you pursue a scientific endeavor, there's this feeling of a, of a somewhat impossible mission. Um, to me, I, I think of it a little bit like astronomy. Like I didn't have direct access to the boat, okay, but not everyone who studies astronomy has physically been to a star. That's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also noticed as I was reading that I, I felt in some ways that it was a celebration of outsiders and amateurs because where you did wind up getting some of that information was like like from a person who just loved to make models of ships. Like, <laughs> not necessarily from a person who could, could back up with a bunch of bona fides why yeah. they love to make these ships. What I've learned is that the internet is just full of nerds. And I mean that in the best possible way. Like, we're out there, guys. No matter what your passion is, there's someone out there who shares it. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, Michael Crisofulu, who deserves so much credit because he's been watching the Hunley since the day it came up from the bottom of the ocean and just taking like screen grabs as the friends of the Hunley and the conservation experts have webcams as they were picking away at it. And so he would like watch and take screen grabs and use it to build this unbelievably elaborate model, which even has um, the correct number of rivets in the hull. Oh, and it's, wow. It's, yeah, it's down to 
the minutia. Um, so if you don't mind, his his website where you can play with the model is Vernian Era, which is V-E-R-N-I-A-N. I don't, I'm in no way affiliated. I just really love it. <laughs> like, um, I loved reading about it. So yeah, I, I'm enthusiastic <laughs> about going and looking at that later. Uh, one of the things that we mentioned in that prior episode that we'd already did on the Hunley was that one of its predecessors, which was the Pioneer, had been scuttled to keep it from falling into enemy hands. You actually unearthed information working on your book that contradicts that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So the story of the Pioneer is a little bit muddled by the fact that there were two submarines that were both two-man crews that were being tested in the same area, which is Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans, outside of New Orleans. And this was a story that became really important to me because I found a touch of deception about it. Um, there is one book called the H.L. Hunley. It's by a historian named Tom Chaffin. And he did a meticulous and diligent job of reporting basically every historical document he could find at the time um, about the Hunley. And he is the only author who I could find who accurately reported this one letter that was written towards the tail end of the Civil War as the Union took New Orleans and then started to write back about the inventory of what they were finding there. And what this letter said was they had found this submarine. It included a very detailed drawing. So it was an engineering scaled drawing done by a professional from the actual physical submarine. And it also said that two contrabands were smothered to death inside of it. And the word contraband used during the Civil War was the northern term for enslaved men and women because um, they said if the South considered these human beings property, then as they swept through, they could possess their so-called property as the contraband of war. And so this was kind of their sneaky way of saying, like, of course we get to free the slaves as we come through. So they started referring to um, slaves and former slaves as contrabands. And so what this says is this is a story about this prototype submarine that they physically had in their possession, and we know it was the CSS Pioneer, that had been piloted by two of these unfortunate enslaved men who died inside because it sank to the bottom of the lake. Now, this is a story that's been a little bit debated. Um, as I'm sure you already know, Tracy, mm. sometimes history changes. So as we recover new documents and as people find new things in archives all the time, we get better reinforcement of what might have been previously unreliable stories. And so in addition to this letter, there's also a third hand account from the same thing of um, someone who was going through the South and Lake New Orleans and was reporting the words from a first hand witness that this was a test by a wealthy slave owner, a plantation owner in the area who had forced his slaves to pilot his prototype submarine as part of a public demonstration with a carnival-like atmosphere, um, which obviously has just layers of complexity and difficulty. Um, and then in addition to that, as I was researching it, I found a third reference. And that for me was enough to reinforce those other two. This third reference was a diary of a man named John Roy. 
And he was a known associate of the people who built the Henley, one of whom was James McClintock. And John Roy, around the time of this supposed demonstration, was invited to go watch a demonstration of a submarine in Lake Pontchartrain. And um, that, to me, that third source was enough to reinforce that this story really actually occurred and that, unfortunately, two enslaved men were forced inside and lost their lives as a result of the failure of the submarine to operate as planned. Um, but the reason that I really wanted to dedicate more time to finding additional sources, and this is actually something that I plan to continue picking away at, and I hope other historians also keep an eye out for these resources too, is because there is an author who has modern day publications about the Hunley who decided to change the wording in that historical letter. So instead of two contramands, he wrote that it was just two normal men. And then he discussed how they were actually Confederate volunteers, which is obviously not true. And to me, it's an appalling misuse of history when you try and cover up something like that. Just just acknowledge what happened um, and be honest. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, when when you and I were arranging this interview and I got the review copy of the book, um, you sent me an email that said something like, buckle up for chapter three. And when I was reading chapter three and I got to this part that we just talked about, I think chapter three was the chapter. Uh, I yeah. was like, I think this is what she, <laughs> that was in reference to. Yes. <sighs> I have never so badly uh, just wanted to like pick up my phone and somehow text to the author of a book and be like, are you serious? <laughs> That would happen. <laughs> I have had people tweet at me that they're like, "Oh my god, did that just yeah. happen?" Like, yeah, that just happened. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. Uh. For that recent Saturday classic that that folks have uh may have listened to, uh, where we said that that it was scuttled to keep it from falling into enemy hands. Not correct. Yeah. That, like I said, there's still some debate because there was a second two-man submarine in the area uh-huh. at the same time. Oh, I see. But yes, yeah, so those two sometimes get confused with each other in the historical record. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, it seems like a story that definitely happened in that area. Yeah. When talking about your blast experiments in the book, you draw on a quote from one of the sailors who died aboard the Hunley about what they had done was, quote, considerable of an undertaking and one that I never wish to undertake again. So when you were, uh, what were you imagining that these experiments were going to be like before you started? Because that makes it kind of clear how you felt about them afterward. (sighs) Yes, um, that is how I felt about them afterward. And now I enjoy telling the story, but I don't know that I would sign up for them again. But when when I first started the project, I honestly was just planning and looking at suffocation. So calculations of oxygen and carbon dioxide are something that I used to do all the time when I was building underwater breathing systems. There's still something I do all the time now that I work more in a respiratory physiology aspect. And that was originally the goal and then 
as I got more into the blast aspects of it and more engaged with this blast problem, the second goal was to build a computer model. So I was still going to be sitting comfortably in my office and just letting my computer run away over the weekend. Uh, but because of some of the complexities of black powder and the way that that is just an unbelievably difficult substance, that didn't work out either. And it ended up becoming necessary to do a live experiment. Well, at that point, I'm kind of an addict when when I get a puzzle. Like if there's a if there's a puzzle question, I'm I'm engaged with that until I starve to death or I solve it. And so I sort of had to keep going. And that's how I ended up in a muddy pond with a skill model. So there are so many fascinating historical tidbits scattered all through this book, like how black powder was made and information about other submarines and other submarine accidents in history. Uh, what were some of your favorite historical details that you came across while working on this? My favorite thing that I discovered while I was researching was actually about the Rains brothers. So I ended up writing a whole chapter on black powder, which is, I promise, so fascinating. It, it is. was one of my favorite chapters. But the Rains brothers, who are Gabriel and George Washington, were responsible for a lot of the black powder and the explosives that the Confederacy had. And I'd originally written like this whole multi-page thing just about George Washington Rains, but I ended up taking it out. It was just too much of a sidebar. Um, but this guy was intense and he was he just cracks me up because he was on a mission to start the black powder mill for the Confederacy. So they're short on black powder. There's no black powder manufacturing to speak of down there. And the blockade is limiting how much they can import. And so this guy is like sleeping on railway cars. He's never made black powder before. And this is an incredibly dangerous thing to try to do. Like they build these mills planning for explosions to happen. And this guy's like, it's cool. I've got a pamphlet. And so he's like, riding around doesn't have a home on these railway cars looking for a place to build a black powder mill for the first time in his entire life just with so much confidence that I lack but um on top of that I got to go through a lot of his letters to his brother Gabriel Reigns Gabriel is his much much older brother something like 15 to 20 years older I would have to look up the exact numbers and Gabriel was the one who really joined the military first and became the munition experts first. He's actually the person who invented landmines. So obviously this is an interesting family. But um, as George Washington's reigns starts to become more involved in the military, he is writing about his activities in battle to his older brother. And now, since it's over 150 years later, we can fact check him. And as it turns out, he was just straight lying. Oh, no. So, yeah, I was sitting in these archives, like reading these George Washington Ray's letters and like Googling the battles. And he was just making things up. And he was there. They're tens of pages long where he describes in detail, like how outnumbered they were and how the opposing forces had all the munitions. And then you look it up and they're like, at this battle, the Americans outnumbered the Mexican forces by three to one. And you're like, So I think that was probably one of my favorite things that I discovered was this guy was just so excited about telling his older brother about his war experiences that he was just making stories. That of. were not real. Yeah. That were not real. Yeah. What surprised you the most when doing this research into the Hunley or, or just in generally when writing the book? What surprised me was the amount of 
this is going to sound so cheesy. Okay. But it's the true answer. It's, it's the amount of kindness that I found. So this whole project was like me with $4,000 at the beginning. And that was from a historical foundation at Duke, as well as the Hagley library in Delaware, which they just do black powder, um, a lot of black powder stuff, but that's not very much like in science. That's like a Mm -hmm. comically small amount. And so, I was really dependent on the charity of other people. And it was really, really moving to me how many people were willing to volunteer their time and resources. So, um, you know, I start writing to the ATF about permitting and immediately I'm on the phone with this ATF agent who's just excited about this project and he's remained a friend. Uh, so we're still in touch all the time, as well as this medical student who's a former Army Explosives Ordnance Disposal Operator. And he was so excited about it. And both of these guys were just willing to like show up at 5 a.m. and jump into 40 degree water. And I never heard one complaint. And we've just become friends from that. And the same goes for like the farmer who let us use his land and as well as the people you mentioned, like people I found just on the internet, people who have contacted mm-hmm. me about the Hunley. Even recently as yesterday, I had um, someone who's passionate about collecting old currency email me just to talk about like Dixon's mythological gold coin. And so um, that's been, I think, my favorite part of the project. And the thing that surprised me most is how many people are willing to kind of volunteer a little piece of themselves to help solve this question. That's awesome. Uh, By coincidence, while I was preparing for this interview, uh, I found the text of the address that John R. McNeil gave at the American Historical Association's annual meeting in January. Um, He's the past president of the American Historical Association. And this address was called Peak Document and the Future of Historical Research. And it was about how historians who are working with primary source documents can, in his words, come up with new wrinkles that breathe new meaning into old and familiar documents. Uh, But that this gets harder and harder to do when historians are going back to the exact same documents over and over and over. So he talks a lot about increasing contributions to the field of history that are coming from science, from things like DNA analysis and LIDAR and other remote sensing, and studying objects with electron microscopes, and what all of this means in terms of training future historians and their scientific literacy. Uh, You, as as like a scientist and and engineer, how do you think the study of science or engineering can benefit uh, historians or can affect the field of history? Ooh, well, he's already listed a couple of really great examples of the way that technology alone can kind of revive the things that we can access, right? So for example, if you have the Dead Sea Scrolls where nobody can visibly read it, but now we have advanced new imaging techniques that can be applied to reading those words, then automatically you have a really obvious combination. My personal favorite way that science and history get combined is when we can kind of fact check our ancestors. Um, So I really love these problems where, for example, like with the Hunley, there were these cases of testimony of seeing this blue light from shore that said, hey, we're coming back. And I, as a scientist, can look at that and be like, did you see it, though? And then do some math (laughs) and be like, "Mm, I somehow doubt this is physically possible based on the capabilities of the human eye. And so I think that that really lends insight into the way that we interpret things, because then once you do that, 
calculation and you say, okay, this is probably not a plausible story. You go back to the original document and you're like, oh, well, this wording could actually be interpreted in a different way. So we're still going back to the same primary source documents, but now we're coming back from a place of being more informed instead of just trying to rehash the words in a hypothetical fashion. Awesome. So uh, this book and your research into the Hunley, that all came out of your, your PhD work. You are now Dr. Rachel Lance. That's that's finished. <laughs> yes. Um, yep. So, Actually, so te- technically, Tracy, technically now I'm Professor Rachel Lance. We that's get wonderful. Fancy. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Rachel is fine. So. Yeah. So, so um, what are you doing now and what's next for you? Well, Duke couldn't get rid of me. I sort of <laughs> just moved in there and refused to leave. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> After I graduated, I did go back to work for the Navy, which was a job that I was extremely passionate about and loved very much. But there was one particular project that was near and dear to me because it was based on um, a man who died diving on one of my projects. And oh. he didn't dive. Yeah, he didn't dive because of the thing I had built, but he was still... Um, he still died because of a thing that kills a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of divers. And so I received a little bit of an ultimatum that would have had to end that project. And I decided that I would rather quit my job than quit that work. So Duke thankfully took me in. They gave me, they gave me a home. I was a homeless scientist for a little while. So now I officially have a title and a faculty position. Uh, but I I'm continuing to do dive medical research and underwater respiratory physiology research, and I'm loving every second of it. And my requirement to them, they actually laughed at me for because they're like, you're the only one who's never who's requested not to ever get tenure (laughs) because I wanted to work part time. So I'm already working on a second book as well. And that's what I'm doing with the balance of my time. Yeah. Um, Can you can you tell us what the second book is about or is that a little under wraps right now? I'm actually hoping to hear back about it today. So by okay. the time this by the time this airs, hopefully I'll have heard back okay. about whether or not there's official deal. But it will be another combination of science and history. So I've already started doing a lot more archival work, um, and it's a lot more military related medicine. And it's about a group of scientists who were doing some pretty crazy experiments on themselves and what they ended up discovering from the the damage they did to their own bodies. Oh really, really helped make D-Day a success. I am intrigued by that. (laughs) Um, Before we wrap up, is like, is there anything you just wish I had asked about or that you just really want to make sure everyone knows about, uh, about your work or this book? I think you've hit all of the major ones. Oh my gosh, is that a bad answer? I'm sorry. No, No, I I like to give Um, folks the chance if, you know, if there's some glaring thing that I really need to, needed to have been more on the ball about. No, I think you did a great job. I just want to mention um, one thing that I really tried very hard to do about this book, and I have chronic feelings of insufficiency about it, but I think it's really important to remember with this story that the Civil War is a fascinating period of history, but it's something that we all really need to talk about honestly. And I tried very, very hard to do that in this book. I tried very hard to pull in new primary source documents so that I could tell the story of, you know, some of the Black men on board the Housatonic and things like that, and to try and give a more complete version of that. And I think that's just one of my big hopes moving forward is that 
people will start to discuss the Hunley as the historically fascinating object it is, but in the proper context. Thank you so much. Thank you for being uh, here today and for, for giving us your time. Again, for folks who are interested, this book is called In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. Thank you, thank you, thank you again to Dr. Rachel Lance for uh, for sitting down to talk with me about her book. Also for being patient with me when about three minutes elapsed before I realized I had only started the recording on one side of our session. (laughs) 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 It had been a while since I had done uh, uh, an interview, and it was also the first time that I had done it with the setup we're using with everybody recording from their own homes because of the ongoing pandemic. Uh, So thank you again um, for that. And I also have a little bit of listener mail to take us out. Perfection. This email is from Janine, who says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I just listened to your podcast on Holmec and practice babies and found them fascinating. I had the same response as Tracy to practice babies on hearing about them for the first time. Oh, right. Those flower sack babies. I remember that. Wait, what? So glad you went on to talk about them in particular. I thought it was funny that neither of you took Holmec. I'm about 10 years younger than you, and my school required both Holmec and shop for everyone in eighth grade. What I mostly remember was making biscuits and sewing stuffed animals from kits. They did let us use the power tools in the shop, so it wasn't as useless as Tracy's experience. I have a background in anthropology, so as I was listening to the discussion on whether having that many caregivers was bad for babies, all I could think was, well, it works great in plenty of cultures. My main thought on hearing the schedule the students kept with the baby was, well, that's not going to prepare you for parenting. You need to be the sole caregiver 24-7 to really get the experience. Probably a good idea they didn't go that route, though. There are a lot of issues with exploitation and consent around the practice baby situation, which I think you both did an excellent job unpacking, both in the episode and in the behind the scenes. But I actually think the fact that they were inexperienced students learning by doing is the least problematic part. In addition to what Tracy said about other fields that allow students to practice, there's the basic fact that in our culture of nuclear family living, most babies go home with parents who have little to no experience with babies. I remember vividly leaving the birth center with my first child and thinking in a panic, they're just going to send this baby home with us? But but I've never taken care of a baby. It's a tiny, helpless human. What do I even do? And we didn't even have a professor of mothercraft to keep an eye on how we were doing. Thanks, Holly and Tracy. Love the show. Especially appreciated your COVID chat when the closures first happened. I really enjoyed the balance of topical episodes and distracting episodes. Hope you are well and healthy. Uh, Janine. Janine also had a a PS saying that Janine wrote ages ago about Girl Scouting. We read the letter on the Juliet Gordon Lowe episode. Um, And then uh, goes on to say, Tracy, you were surprised that Juliet spent so much of her life chasing after a man and such an unworthy one at that. I think of that part of her life in a different way. To me, her pursuit of and marriage to William Lowe shows many of the same qualities that she showed in founding Girl Scouts and qualities that she encouraged in girls through scouting tenacity, daring, and a commitment to doing what she felt was right, regardless of the disapproval of society or people around her. So thank you so much, Janine, for this email. I had never thought of the Juliet Gordon Lowe's life and her ill-fated relationship that way at all. So um, thank you for that counterpoint. Uh, If you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast.iheartradio.com. 
We're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.